Just don't pull any strings, okay? No. Is that all you're going to eat? Yeah, well, it's all I have time for. I only have a few minutes. I'm paying for both. Uh, paying for three. It's some lunch, Dad. Coleslaw and quiche. I hate quiche. Then why did you take it? I thought it was pie. And coleslaw makes me sick. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review, rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Our season-long theme, The Summer of Canon, continues to roll on, as this week the LSCE delves into a serial killer-inspired slasher, as we screen 1983's cult classic, 10 to Midnight. Join us! So I have a little confession to make. While I will be the first to tell you, yeah, absolutely, I am a Charles Bronson fan. I do enjoy and respect his work. I'll admit to you, yeah, he does embody the look of someone who basically was just a punch in the face out walking around to polite society, but I think a lot of what I've, you know, had to say about him, I did sum up in last summer's coverage of Hard Times. So go back, listen to that. That was a fun one. But it doesn't really matter. Bronson himself just exudes a level of cool because he's one of those people that actually doesn't seem to give a rat's ass if he actually is perceived as being cool or not. He's just this animal for hire 24-7. As long as you pay him, he's going to do whatever. So that said, my mea culpa, well, while I can say I now own all of them, I have to tell you, the Death Wish films don't even crack my top 10 when it comes to Charles Bronson or his career. I'm not a prude, they're from a different time, but honestly, they're just so angry, ugly, and bleak. And while I appreciate what they do cinematically, they really don't hold a candle, to, at least in my estimation, to Bronson's other work. And that's where this week's film comes into play. Once again, this is one of those films that was introduced to me by way of The Mighty Xerxes a couple years back. He pulled me aside and was like, we gotta watch this together. It's a trip. And I'll be damned if he wasn't correct. This film is certifiably bananas. In both what it's trying to do, its subject matter, and its overall message. It's a really weird time capsule of crazy. And of course, me being me, I fell in love with it. And while I'll freely admit, it's a rough film on its own. And it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. That said, for those who like to dabble in some things that are a bit, well, rougher in the sense of cinematic trade, this is a film that will deliver in weird ways to the baser instincts of the human condition. So how exactly does a film like this come along? And how does it get made by canon? Well, first, you have the hungry producers at canon who are just looking for the next big vehicle to stick their under-contract star, Charles Bronson, in. That, and, well, to understand where this source material comes from, you unfortunately have to go back and look at some of the historical actions of one rather sick individual, Richard Speck. So I've said it before and I'll say it again here. I'm not a big true crime fan. I'm not a serial killer junkie. 
I do feel I know a few things, and I can definitely tell you that I have friends and relatives who are really into that sort of thing, and that's great. It's just not my cup of tea. So all that said, I'm telling you now, I'm purposely going to give short shrift to Mr. Speck, because, well, yes, he was a person who did have a large impact with his horrific actions. I don't really want to make it seem like I'm trying to glamorize him in any way, shape, or form. Richard Speck himself was born December 6, 1941, in Kirkwood, Illinois, to Benjamin and Mary Speck, the youngest boy in a brood of eight siblings, three boys, five girls. His father died when he was young, and the family moved around a lot after Mom Mary ended up remarrying a traveling salesman who had relocated them to Texas. Stepdad was not really a good guy, a violent drinker who had a criminal record of his own. Speck, growing up, was a poor student, he was socially awkward, and he himself started drinking at a young age, quickly transitioning into becoming a juvenile delinquent dropping out of high school, and the entire time committing a bunch of petty crimes. Essentially, from 1962 forward, Speck would establish a routine of becoming a teenage drifter, taking odd jobs, drinking heavily, committing random acts of violence, burglary, sexual assault, and then ultimately he'd be arrested, he'd serve some time, then he'd be released to his family, who would kick him out for his horrible behavior, and then the cycle would repeat again and again, sending the young man on an upward arc, establishing a rap sheet stretching from Texas all the way back up through central Illinois, and then on to Chicago to avoid further legal ramifications. In July of 1966, the 13th, Speck ended up breaking into the townhouse of Chicago's Jeffrey Manor neighborhood, which served as an approved dormitory for a group of nursing students who were training at the South Chicago Community Hospital only seven blocks away. Out of the eight women who lived there, seven of them were seniors in the nursing program, and one of them was a Filipino exchange student as part of the graduate nursing program. They had a friend and fellow nursing student visiting that evening. That woman would actually go on to be the only survivor, Corazon Amaral. She would remember going to dinner with friends, coming back to the townhouse, everyone chatting, having a good time. That is, until a tall man brandishing a gun broke into the townhouse, claiming, though, that he wouldn't hurt any of them. He was just there to rob them. He wanted their money. He told them he was going to New Orleans. He then proceeded to take all of their money, and after the final roommate, Gloria Davy, returned from a date with her boyfriend, Speck then proceeded to tie all of the women in attendance up, and then he began to systematically take them, one by one, out of the room and up the hall to a larger bedroom, where... Crying and violence could clearly be heard by the rest of the remaining hostages. After this happened a few times, the nursing students desperately began to try and hide from their captor, but he would easily find them and the process would still repeat. In the end, Amaral, who had been hiding under one of the beds, would be the final witness to see Speck come in for Davy. He ended up raping and then removing her downstairs to the couch in the living room. Either by a count of the beds in proportion to the victims, or owning to the fact that Speck himself was high when he was doing these actions, he ended up leaving the scene, taking the money, and forgetting that he had left someone alive. After hiding for several hours, Amaral was able to free her wrists and ankles where she was bound, and then she traveled out of the bedroom to find the bodies of her friends and fellow nurses, and that's when she began to scream out the window for help. Some of the victims had been strangled, some were stabbed, some experienced both. The murders rocked both the Chicago South Side and shocked the nation. Back during a time when the country was not used to experiencing such acts of mass violence, or really having a modern understanding for serial killers. If you recall, there's an episode of Mad Men where the news of the murders scares young Sally Draper, and they have a big conversation about it. Now, Speck unknowingly left an eyewitness, not to mention his fingerprints all over the scene. So local authorities who had already known Speck from his long rap sheet at this point were able to pretty much match him up to this crime right away. Sketches of his face and his distinctive Born to Raise Hell tattoo were circulated, and Speck himself attempted to commit suicide five days later. But 
He was found and sent to a hospital, and that's where the doctor on call at Cook County recognized him and contacted the police who came forward and arrested the killer. Speck was placed on trial the following spring, and on April 15th of 1967, he was found guilty of the murders and was initially given the death penalty. During the appeals process, the Illinois capital punishment laws were basically set aside by the 1972 U.S. Supreme Court decision of Furman versus Georgia, which ruled the death penalty to be unconstitutional. That led the state of Illinois re-sentencing Speck to serve instead eight consecutive life sentences, or 1,200 years. Speck had different stories over the years about the murders himself, maintaining his innocence for a time, and then later speaking about having a partner involved. Then, he would eventually go on to give a full confession that he had openly committed the murders, sneering to the press, Yeah, I killed them. I stabbed and choked them. If that one girl wouldn't have spit in my face, they would all have been alive today. Speck would in later years blame his action on the heroin and the whiskey he had indulged in that evening, mentioning that he feels it would have been just, you know, a normal robbery, had he not been so out of it. December 5th, 1991, Speck himself died of a heart attack at the age of 49 in Illinois' Statesville prison, which then prompted more folks to begin to look into the man and his time in the prison over the last few years. And that's really when all hell broke loose. If one had managed to be under a rock or just too young to know about the Speck murders, the media bombshell that was dropped by Chicago journalist Bill Curtis with his television documentary on the conditions of the Illinois prison system, that's when things got turbo weird all about Richard Speck. You see, in early May of 1996, Curtis brought forward to the Illinois state legislature a bunch of tapes that he had received in 1988 that were made of Richard Speck during his time at Statesville, and the public got to experience the sight of an older Richard Speck, now sporting a very bizarre set of hormone-grown breasts, parading around in ladies' lingerie, doing drugs and having sexual encounters with other inmates, all while smoking and talking to the camera about how much fun he was having, and admitting that the young women who were killed it just wasn't their night. As one who was around during the time, you couldn't not see the clips. It was on every news outlet in the Chicagoland area, and it would remain in the public consciousness for years to come, with Bill Curtis consistently repackaging and then speaking about the video right as the boom of true crime shows hit at the end of the 90s and accelerated into the early aughts. Now again, that was just to give you some context. At the time this film was being made, there had actually already been two films made internationally about the murder of those student nurses. The fictionalized 1967 Japanese film Violated Angels, and then, almost a decade later, another fictionalized account would come out of France with a partnership with some German filmmakers, creating the 1976 exploitation film Born in Hell. That's where this crazy American veteran goes to Ireland, and at the height of his madness, he ends up breaking into and terrorizing a house full of nurses. Understandably, this was not a story that most mainstream people would think would make a good movie. Now, something else has to be said. Bronson, at this time, he was placed under contract with Canon, and the Go-Go Boys got the rights to make a sequel to Death Wish. They had made some decent cash off of their investment with him. Shot for only $8 million, Death Wish 2 would go on to earn a cool $16 million at the American box office, and, what's more, an estimated $30 million internationally, not to mention the fortune that Canon made off of the back end with the pre-sales and the video marketplace sales, and they wanted to replicate that same level of success again, placing their star in yet another grim and violent exploitation picture that they could of course sell worldwide. When Golan and Globus were cruising for what would be a good script, they would try to use to showcase Bronson in this post-Death Wish 2 era, they would start to get into a dialogue with producer Poncho Koner, a man who had made a number of films with Charles Bronson in the past, and they wanted to work with the famed but fading director J. Lee Thompson. And both of them had wanted to buy the rights to the R. Lance Hill novel, 1978's the evil that men do. Koner had pitched to them that he could get the rights and he could have a script made for $200,000. And that 
is where Menahem Golan drew the line. In Golan's mind, you didn't need to spend that sort of money on something as frivolous as a script, you just needed a different title and a concept. Incidentally, The Evil That Men Do would get pitched and then later bought by TriStar, who would go on to actually make that movie with Conor, Thompson, and Charles Bronson starring, and it was a modest hit in 1984. And for the record, it's a really good movie. Golan instead decided to go with his vaporware concept again. He selected a very generic title, 10 to Midnight, and then he had artwork mocked up to show Bronson brandishing an Uzi standing in front of the globe. Right underneath the title, they put a tagline, an international thriller. And that's when Golan took it on the road and he pre-sold it at Cannes to a bunch of foreign investors, telling them that Bronson in this picture would be fighting a bunch of terrorists, knowing that he would attach a completely different script to all of it once he had already achieved funding. Golan ended up getting Conor and told him, come up with some story and we'll shoot it. So they started shopping for a script and they ended up reaching out to a fellow producer, Lance Houle, who had already worked with the lot of them and who had worked with Bronson in particular when they made Cabo Blanco in 1980. Poole himself had been sniffing around for the latest works of author William Roberts, and he was interested in a script that Roberts had penned. Roberts himself was an established screenwriter. He had cut his teeth writing for the small screen, penning episodes of the Donna Reed show, but give the man credit, he was no slouch. After all, it was he who had wrote one of the most testosterone-soaked trips to the Old West that you can go and see. He had penned the original 1960, The Magnificent Seven. He had been at the time trying to develop a script under the working title of Bloodbath, later changed to Bloody Sunday, and that was his loose retelling of the Richard Speck murders. It was going to need tightening up, it was going to need some major changes, and probably most glaring, it wasn't really an international thriller full of globe-trotting heroes taking on terrorists. But you know what? It didn't matter. It was a script, and with the Go-Go Boys' full approval, the title 10 to Midnight was swapped in, and now they had an official story to tell. Now you're going to have Bronson playing the role of a cantankerous detective, Leo Kessler, who is going to be taking on a serial killer in a film that skews hard into the horror slasher genre, and, but mixed in with a standard detective procedural. You want to know some really weird and kind of creepy irony? At the time of his incarceration, Richard Speck gave an interview where he explained that he was a huge fan of Charles Bronson, as well as Clint Eastwood, but he really enjoyed their films and their personas as being violent players on the screen, because in his own personal estimation, he himself was not a violent man. Right. Now, Golan and Globus were savvy enough to realize you don't mess with a good thing, especially when it's making you money. So they kept J. Lee Thompson on as a director. And to date, he had already worked with Bronson on three other pictures. He had done 1976's St. Ives, then he had done 1977's The White Buffalo, and then 1980's Cabo Blanco. Thompson was an old hand by this point. I mean, the man was known to be a director for hire, but an accomplished one. He had made magnificent pictures, and he had some amazing things under his belt, like 1961's The Guns of the Navarone, 1962's Cape Fear, and 1969's McKenna's Gold. And he had also done both Conquest and then the follow-up Battle for the Planet of the Apes in 1972 and 1973, respectively. Bronson trusted him, felt comfortable with him, and would follow anywhere that he led. Bronson himself was interesting during this period of his career. He was still capable of holding his own on screen, but he was starting to get a little bit of self-doubt, and you could kind of almost see it tangible up there on the big screen because he had gotten some plastic surgery to try to appear more youthful and it didn't really work but his involvement with canon was simply a means to an end it was a way to still earn money star in movies even when he felt the material was clearly beneath him with a budget of 4.5 million dollars thompson set out to cast this hodgepodge of a film joining bronson on screen was a young andrew stevens son of the great stella stevens and star of such b-movie greats as 1977's the day of the animals 1978's the fury and 1981's death hunt he 
was going to come on board and play the role of Officer Paul McCann, the young partner assigned to Bronson's Kessler. Lisa Eilbacher, right in the middle of her short-lived It Girl status in the early to mid-80s, she was cast as Laurie Kessler, Leo's headstrong nursing student daughter. Eilbacher was coming off of shooting an officer and a gentleman, and the following year she would show up in Beverly Hills Cop, playing the very famous role of Jenny Summers. To play the killer, actor Gene Davis was cast, younger brother of the late great Brad Davis of Midnight Express fame. Davis actually had a tough time on the film because a good portion of this shoot required him to walk around set completely naked. Get over this, Davis attempted to normalize the fact that he had to do most of his scenes in the buff, so he would walk around the set nude a lot to help try to acclimate his co-stars, which was met with mixed results. Bronson, for his taste, was not a fan of being around naked dudes, and in the case of Eilbacher, she had a real hard time conversing with him while his junk was on full display. You have to have, you know, some really great character actors, though, come on board here as well. We do you get the fantastic Jeffrey Lewis coming on board to play a slimy defense attorney and the role of Bronson's police captain. Good old, reliable Wilford Brimley is on board to bring his trademark brand of grump. Throw in some up-and-coming eye candy of the day, like Ola Ray, you may remember her as Michael Jackson's date in the Thriller video, a young Jenna Keough, well, at the time she was billed as Jenna Tomasina, she was the Playboy Playmate and ZZ Top video star of the time, and she went on to become a desperate housewife on reality TV, and of course you then had a young Kelly Paulsus, but you'd know her today as the late great Kelly Preston. And all of them are on board in the rather thankless tasks of being random victims for Davis's knife-wielding maniac. Filming would take place in Los Angeles in late October of 1982, and wrapped in December of that same year, with night shoots making the naked Davis quite cold and wet. And that was made even harder by the fact that for every kill scene he would have to shoot, he'd have to film it all again over again to allow the pre-sold TV edits to be made. So he'd have to redo all of these violent scenes and all of these chases, first naked and then again in a black set of underwear briefs. The ending also had to be changed at the insistence of Charles Bronson, because the 61-year-old did not like the original penned ending that had a final confrontation that had him fighting and grappling with a naked Davis in the streets over a knife. Charles Bronson doesn't truck with naked dudes, and that forced Thompson and writer Roberts to have to adapt the ending to give it a more distant, bullet-related finish, where the actor could get behind and feel comfortable with not having to touch a nude co-star. But, <laughs> geez, folks, you've listened to my gassing on long enough. How's about I shut my mouth and we get to that trailer? What do you say? sensational crime. An airtight alibi. We can't lay a finger on this guy. And a chain of evidence. Bring him in. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer. And he's running out of time. Go ahead. Sink me in. You can't punish me. When the guilty go free, the system is the crime. Mean, selfish son of a bitch. But I want to kill her, and what I want comes first. Well, how come I've never heard him mention a daughter? It seldom crosses his mind that he has one. He's one angry man with someone to protect. Along with your father. He can make a difference. You like hurting girls? I won't answer that. Girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? I won't listen to your bills. Remind you about others obtained under duress? It's inadmissible, Leo. We got no evidence that we can't hold this kid. He's our man, Captain. I'm gonna get him. Found some blood. He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. Yeah. What are you pretty worried? Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. The last thing I want to do is get involved with a cop. Well, I don't blame him. Leo, I went back to the lab and I talked to the technician. And I asked him if you... Why didn't you ask me? You know why. We could nail it sooner or later. After Connie, how many more dead? We had to be stopped. Forget what's legal, do what's right. After all the evidence is in, he'll reach his own verdict and execute the sentence by the deadline. When there is no justice, this man is the law. <laughs> 
10 to midnight. Charles Bronson, Lisa Eilbacher, and Andrew Stevens in a Golan Globus production of a J. Lee Thompson film. 10 to midnight. We open on a cold and calculating Warren Stacy, as played by Gene Davis, staring at a young lady, Betty, as played by June Gilbert, as she crosses the city plaza to meet up with her boyfriend, Dale Anders, as played by Darren Safran. We end up flashing to a memory of Stacy awkwardly attempting to flirt with her at the office they both work at, unzipping her dress from behind, and then we get to see the young woman's reaction to that, where she throws hot coffee in his face. He goes home, he showers, he puts on cologne, nice clothes, and then arms himself with a rather wicked-looking butterfly knife before he heads out into the evening. Stacy goes to a movie theater where he purchases a ticket to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, taking special care to first talk to the ticket taker and then to start to awkwardly hit on a fellow filmgoer, Tina, as played by Katrina Parrish, before he excuses himself to the men's room, where he props open and then exits through a window. Warren Stacy then drives up to a lakeside location where Betty and her boyfriend are camping in his van, and after removing all of his clothes, donning a set of latex gloves, he takes out his knife and attacks and kills the young couple in cold blood. Satisfied, he cleans himself up and returns back to the theater, slipping into the bathroom and back into his seat right in time for the end of the film, making sure to take time to once again harass and hit on Tina before heading home. Oh, he's so cute! Don't even look he's at him. He's cute, though. Yes. Yeah, that's his problem. I don't know hard feelings, I hope. Isn't that bad? Come on, don't be like that. Let's start over. You don't like popcorn. How about a drink? And don't tell me you're not old enough. We're old enough. We're just not that hot up for company. Wait a minute. He's only trying to be friendly. So what'd you have in mind? Forget it. I wouldn't want to come between you and your girlfriend. Good night, sweethearts. <laughs> Don't do anything I couldn't do better. The next day at the crime scene, cranky veteran LAPD detective Leo Kessler, as played by Charles Bronson, is introduced to fellow officer Paul McCann, as played by Andrew Stevens. He's being told that he's going to work with him by their grizzled Captain Malone, as played by Wilford Brimley, who wants the two to pair up and try to solve the murder of Betty Johnson, something that Kessler takes personally as the young woman was a childhood friend of his own daughter. The detectives start to make inquiries with Johnson's friends and co-workers, starting with her roommate Karen, as played by Jenna Keough, who mentions that Betty did go out with a lot of guys, but recently she'd been starting to get obscene phone calls from some guy who seemed to be Spanish. Kessler sends McCann to go run down some leads, and he inspects Betty's personal effects, which includes her diary. At Betty's funeral, Kessler's own daughter Lori attends, as played by Lisa Eilbacher, and Kessler makes note that there's this intense young man in attendance, Warren Stacy, who is trying to listen in on the conversations between the cops and the victim's parents, learning that Betty kept a diary. After having an awkward interaction with McCann, Lori ends up spooking Warren further, where she walks up to him and says he looks familiar, and the young man ends up excusing himself and trying to leave as quickly as possible. Warren heads over to Betty and Karen's place, where he breaks in and begins searching for Betty's diary. As Karen returns home from the funeral, Warren ends up grabbing a knife from the kitchen and hides in a bedroom closet, observing her as she changes clothes and takes a phone call from her boyfriend, telling him that she wants to stay in and take a nap. Deciding to tie up a loose end, a naked Warren exits the closet, now sporting another pair of latex gloves, where he proceeds to kill the unsuspecting Karen and cleans up the evidence, washing the blade in the kitchen sink. He's angered to discover that the box which would hold Betty's diary is empty, and Karen had already given it to Detective Kessler. Stacy arrives home to discover that both Kessler and McCann are waiting for him, noting that they did indeed see him at the funeral, and they have a few questions for him. Stacy tries to remain calm and cool, but the facade starts to slip as the two men begin to question him. It appears you're something of a movie buff. 
I try to see everything worthwhile. You're into karate, are you? Helps keep me in shape. Yeah, nothing takes the place of regular exercise, does it? I see you keep yourself informed. Not often someone you know personally gets murdered. How well did you know her? Same as the other girls in the office. You ever take her out? Once. Why only once? She wasn't my type. We talked to just about everybody that went out with her. Maybe you can shed some light on what we learned. What's that? This is Betty's diary. We got it from her roommate. Well, she kept what you might call a graphic record of her experiences. Uh, for instance, so conceited that when he said that I want to go to bed with him, it was like he was doing me a favor. It's Larry Williams. You know him? No. Always talking about his Corvette and cabin cruiser, but never once bothered to mention having a wife. George Latham. You know him? No. Good looking, but what a creep. Makes my skin crawl. I told him to get lost. Creep called me up again. Creep asked me to the office picnic. I said I had a date. He said I was lying. That made me mad. I said I wouldn't go with him if he was the last man alive. You know who that is? I'll give you a hint. You. They say one shouldn't speak ill of the dead. But the truth is, she was not a nice person. No morals at all and terrible manners. Well, I know what you mean. Man can only take so much abuse before he strikes back. It's not what I mean. Where were you on the night of the 6th? At the Arrow Theater. Well, Betty Johnson was murdered on the night of the 7th. I assumed you meant the night of the murder. Anybody see you there? The cashier. The manager. A couple of girls I talked to. What was the movie? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, the one with Newman and McQueen. Newman and Redford. Shall I tell you the rest of the cast? What it's about? Nah, that's not necessary. These are games we play with just about everybody. Nothing personal. Can I use your bathroom? Help yourself. Kessler stoops through Stacy's bathroom while McCann learns that he can speak Spanish. While the detectives are wrapping things up, they learn from the radio that Karen has been murdered in the same fashion as Betty, and they excuse themselves, leaving a nervous yet still somewhat smug Warren alone. When they get to the crime scene, Kessler shares his suspicion that he thinks Warren is the killer with the captain, and the police end up calling him in for further questioning. During the interrogation, Kessler increasingly becomes unhinged, noting that Warren has done time in juvenile detention for both hurting animals and for slashing a young girl with a knife. He begins to mock the young man's sexuality, commenting on the pornography and the sex toys that they found in his apartment, rattling the young man but not breaking him. When the teens from the theater come forward to corroborate his alibi that he was at the movies, Kessler angrily has to let Stacy go. During his time out, Warren begins to fixate on Lori, parking outside of the hospital and following her to nursing school where she studies and lives. Obscene phone calls start to come in, unsettling Lori and causing her to confide with her father and McCann that she's having some trouble. They end up bugging her phone and allow her to record phone calls that come in. Lori invites McCann to join her at a college party, which he reluctantly agrees to attend, he eventually comes because he wants to keep an eye on her and because he starts to feel a growing attraction to her. They do get another call, with Warren harassing her recorded, and then they decide to push to get Stacy charged with general harassment. Kessler, fuming, decides that this just isn't good enough, and so he decides to sneak into the police forensics lab, and he lifts a sample of blood from the evidence lab. He then breaks into Warren's apartment and plants a victim's blood on Stacy's clothes, framing the young man for murder. Stacy is eventually arrested, and while Kessler and McCann are hailed as heroes, McCann does a little bit of snooping and realizes that Leo has framed Stacy. After being confronted by his partner, Kessler cannot bring himself to force McCann to commit perjury on the stand. So, during Stacy's trial, he has to admit to the court that he planted evidence, freeing Stacy and losing his job on the police force. Stacy decides to take this opportunity to enjoy giving Kessler a very gloating phone call. Yeah, hello. 
How you doing, Mr. Kessler? Enjoying yourself? I am. I told you what a dirty shit you are. Now the whole world knows. Right. What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? To forgive is divine, they say. But I don't aspire to being an angel. Know what I mean? You tried to kill me, I owe you for that. And I always try and pay what I owe. Be seeing you, Mr. Kessler. Likewise, Mr. Stacy. At first, Stacy decides to throw all of this in Kessler's face, only to then have the now ex-cop turn the tables on him. Slowly stalking him throughout the day, following him in his car, repeatedly breaking into his apartment to leave things, and of course, getting Stacy in trouble at work by posting crime scene photos of the naked victims up in his workspace. Kessler continues to tail Stacy, right as the young man decides to start to enact his own revenge. Stacy once again sets up an alibi for himself, hiring a hooker for the evening, slipping her a Mickey at a cheap motel, and then tying her up in the rented room, before heading out the fire escape to make his way over to the nursing dormitory. Kessler, a step behind him, realizes that Lori is in danger and desperately attempts to call and warn her. Warren arrives with flowers and makes his way into the dorm, where he disrobes and forces his way into Lori's suite, pretending to make a delivery. Before Kessler can warn them, Warren is officially broken in, and he starts to interrogate and torture, and then eventually kill, Lori's roommates, Ola, Doreen, and Bunny. Is played by Ola Ray, Kelly Preston, and Iva Lane, demanding to know where Lori is. Horrified, Lori hides in the kitchen and then transitions to hiding under the bed as Warren stalks around the dormitory suite hunting for more victims. Kessler manages to get a hold of McCann, and they rush together into the dorm, hoping they're not too late. Lori ends up making a break from the dormitory suite, only to be chased out into the streets of L.A. by a very naked and bloody Warren. He begins to gain upon her, pulling forward with his knife, but the sounds of sirens draw ever closer, and Lori, eventually exhausted, trips and falls into her waiting father's arms, who is now standing in the middle of the street, leveling a revolver at the raving madman. As patrol cars pull up, Stacy drops his knife and begins to rant at Kessler, telling him none of this will matter. He can't be stopped. McCann! Don't shoot! Get back! Get away! I tried to keep you from running loose. Now there are three more dead girls. You drove me to it! That blood on my clothes! Those pictures on the wall where everybody could see them! Digging into my personal life! That's my life! Those phone calls on me every minute! All those girls. You sick son of a bitch. I am sick. I am sick. I didn't know what I was doing. It's like something was happening and I couldn't control myself. Why else would I kill girls I don't even know? It's like I'm two different people. I hear voices telling me what to do. Once it begins, I can't stop. So go ahead. Arrest me. Take me in. You can't punish me. I'm sick. You can't punish me for being sick. All you can do is lock me up. But not forever. One day I'll get out. One day they'll get out. That's the law. That's the law. That's the law. As officers run up to subdue him, Warren becomes even more agitated, explaining that they won't have heard the last of him. He's going to get out. He'll come back. Everyone's going to hear from him again. Kessler and the rest of the world. Only to have the craggy detective level his revolver at him and softly say, no, we won't, before putting a single round through the killer's forehead, ending his reign of terror. Laurie, McCann, Kessler, and a host of LAPD's finest stand awkwardly as a helicopter shot begins to pull away from the scene, and credits roll.
good lord, where do we even begin? Well, let's first jump into just how weirdly prescient this film was when it came to forensics and crime. Because truly, this is way ahead of its time. Now, I know the concept of Stacy stripping down into the nude for his kills was meant to be both terrorizing and act as a stand-in for his implied shortcomings, but the logical bend to it all, his desire not to sully his clothing with the blood and DNA of his victims, well, honestly, that's really spot on. He drops the laundry, he knifes the intended people he wants gone, he cleans himself up, puts back on his clothes, and he leaves no trace of blood or fibers in the process. Oddly enough, when this film came out, Stacy's use of a movie theater as an alibi was mocked by certain critics, but truthfully, from a story standpoint, it's honestly a brilliant tactic. You go to a theater, you buy a ticket, you're really obnoxious, you're seen by a bunch of people, you slip out when it's dark, do your nefarious activity, and then you sneak back in for the ending and cement the experience by being a jerk to the bunch of folks one more time, they remember you. It leaves the character with a really great alibi. Although I have to say, for the choice of film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, not that it's a bad movie, but it is a little less than two hours. Maybe I would have said, you know, you want to commit a crime? Pick something you know is even longer. You know, The Godfather. Lawrence of Arabia. Just pad that time out. Now, Davis is playing a really repugnant character here, but it's quite interesting how the film decides to frame him. He's horrible, yeah, but he's good-looking. He's this rage-filled young man who's quite vain about both his own personal looks and physique. He's confident in his abilities to outsmart the authorities at large, and he's always seemingly just a few steps ahead of everybody. If we look at it now from our current time frame's lens, he's really this proto-incel. He's a guy who on paper should absolutely be able to attract many a nice young lady, but he's so crass and off-putting and rude, clearly unbalanced, that he repels women, and so they reject him, and that feeds his anger and rage. Kessler is not wrong when he makes his connection that the knife in Stacy's hand is a phallic stand-in for what he would like to do, but it's so heavy-handed, excuse the pun, and over the top, that it makes people dismiss a lot of what the film's saying outright. Now, I'll say this too, Stacy is a rather odd amalgam of several serial killers. Obviously, we have the Richard Speck connection, but they're also trying to bring in sort of this Ted Bundy vibe, except it doesn't quite work, because, you see, Bundy was good-looking, and he would charm his victims, he would get them to trust him, and he was friendly and non-threatening. He just happened to then be a horrible killer. Stacy is not any of that. He doesn't have any sort of facade to fall back on. He's just good-looking, but he's so despised that just about everybody he interacts with walks away feeling, well, worse for having met him. And it makes the film seem sort of strange. It plays its hand so openly, it almost feels like it would have made more sense if Stacy was charming to complete strangers, but those who knew him would have doubts about him or bad vibes because then it would highlight this weird double life he was trying to live. Nope. Instead, we just got this guy who everyone hates. They just can't prove he's a monster quite yet, which seems to be sort of lazy writing in my opinion. Also, and I know this goes without saying, but his obscene phone calls, yeah, I get it as a plot device. It makes perfect sense. But Davis making the choice to have his character do such that horrible, horrible, bad Spanish accent when he's dialing up potential victims. When you watch it now, it really hasn't aged well, and it sort of ramps the cringe factor up to 11. Hello? Hi, baby. How's it going? How are you? Well, I'm fine. Who's this? You don't know me. But I know you. You're beautiful. I love you. Well, what good does it do to love me if I don't know who you are? Quiero mamata la ponocha. What does that mean? Means I want to eat your pussy. How about it, baby? You have reached a disconnected number. This is a recording. Who was that? Just some creep.
What I actually think is most interesting and strange about this movie is the weird line that it walks with exactly how Kessler reacts to Stacy from the onset of the story. It's as if author Roberts and director Thompson really wanted to have a character that would fit in with the worldview of both the real Charles Bronson and, more importantly, all of those uptight middle-aged white audience members, you know, true believers in Reagan's America, who would be sitting there, having bought a ticket and salivating and cheering on the violence and vigilantism that makes our disgraced detective such a, quote, cool guy. The moment Kessler walks into Stacy's apartment, he has nothing but contempt for the young man, which, as a viewer, makes for a rather weird dynamic. We're supposed to think Kessler's this really sharp detective. You know, he's got all the psychology behind what's going on with the killer. He's able to spot this immediately. That, and the fact that, as we have saw at the clip at the top of the show, he's so focused on crime, he can't figure out, you know, the difference between pie and quiche. So what does that tell us? We as the audience know that Stacy is a killer. We watched him pull off his crime. But Kessler has really no reason to immediately hone in on Stacy's guilt. Instead, what we're left with is watching a man in his 60s really lay into all of the things that he seems to hate about the youth of the day. He mocks Stacy for his apartment's aesthetic, his film posters, his dedication to fitness, martial arts, his clothes, most notably his underwear, which I thought was weird. It's as if BVD briefs, which were popular in the day, are considered some sort of weird out there statement. That, at least until he finds what ultimately is the linchpin to determine the killer's guilt. You know, the very logical finding of his porn stash and of a sex toy. For a film made in 1983, it's of course handled with all of the quiet dignity and grace only Charles Bronson himself could provide. When's the last time you made it with a girl, Lorne? That's not last your... Last week, last month, last year. I refuse to answer. Never. You never made it with a girl because girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? Betty and Karen and God knows how many more. I won't listen to your filth. I won't listen What's to this, Warren? Warren? Warren, do you recognize this? Leo, What's knock that, it Warren? off. You ever see one of these before? What's it used for? What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? It's for jacking off, isn't it? And these pictures, you recognize the girls on the pictures, Warren? Look at them. Look at them, Warren. Look at them, Warren. Look at them. Okay, not to get creepily personal, but it seems only an attack like that can be countered one of two ways in sort of a real-world scenario. The first, and what I would personally think is the stronger route to take, is complete and utterly shame-free acknowledgement, but you tinge it with a little bit of condescending incredulity and then you comically take it to an aggressive degree. Maybe throw in a goofy accent, like, <laughs> what of it? Oh, you looking to borrow some gear? Yeah, Saturday night's party night number one around here. <laughs> Three fingers ain't just your drink request, if you know what I mean. <laughs> take it, take it, have a good time. Yeah, have fun. Right. The other route that one can take is the one that our killer actually does sort of model. He gets disgusted, but he has a subtle, bemused smirk the entire time, which both acknowledges the clear discomfort of the person making the accusation, but seemingly looks down with their sort of puritanical bent on the whole situation. And that's how Stacy actually reacts to this. The scene doesn't fit with really anything in this movie. It's so unbelievably wild. It's so out of place, out of time, and out of touch with just about everything that it takes on a real cartoonish quality. And while, yeah, it does fit in with this rather bizarre worldview held by Bronson's Kessler, it sort of just feels out of place. You get from him as you watch the film that, well, in Kessler's opinion, a real man has sex with a real woman. And if he can't swing that, he's supposed to do the next best socially acceptable thing, which we get to see Kessler doing a lot, which is drinking alone quietly in the darkness of his living room until he passes out. In Kessler's own warped sense of reality, it's just one of the better parts of 10 to Midnight as a film itself, because 
anything Kessler does never really seems grounded in any sort of logic. Case in point, he knows in his heart of hearts that Warren Stacy is their man and that he is the killer. And he knows if he sticks with them long enough, he's going to screw up and he'll catch him. But rather than tailing him, which is exactly what he does after he's thrown off the police force, he instead frames a guilty man for murder. And he does it in such a haphazard way that not only destroys his own career, but then it gives Stacy the green light to now operate as if he has full diplomatic immunity. You've essentially encouraged more murder to happen by doing it this way. So Stacy was framed. Oh, that Dave Dante's not a lawyer, he's a shyster. He's contending that the evidence was planted. Do you know that to him this is one big game? If he gets Stacy off, he's won the Super Bowl. And to all the scum out there, he's a hero. Leo, I went back to the lab and I talked to the technician. And I asked him if you were... What the hell did you do that Because! Why didn't you ask me? Because I was afraid you might tell me you planted those bloodstains. Yeah, well... I did. Jesus, Leo. What the hell's the matter with you? What kind of a question is that? You know why. We could have nailed him sooner or later. After counting how many more dead, he had to be stopped. And the only way to do that is to put him away. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, I understand what you're saying. You want me to go into a court of law and to commit perjury? What the hell do you think he's going to do? He's going to perjure himself. He'll lie about everything he's done. Stacy's not a cop. He didn't take an oath. An oath for Jesus Christ. Would you take an oath that he's not guilty? You go in that courtroom and forget what's legal and do what's right. It's only after he's thrown off the force that he personally follows and investigates Stacy. That's when Kessler gets all the real leads he needs to stop him. Which again begs the question, why didn't you just do this in the first place rather than trying to frame a guilty man? This is also a film that seems to operate in the improbable universe where, rather than being jailed himself for his own crimes, Kessler just gets some kind of free pass and he's only forced into taking early retirement by way of being fired from the force. And then later, when we're supposed to cheer that he's just executed a man in the street in cold blood in front of a host of other police officers who allow this to happen, that's supposed to be the highlight of the film good triumphing over evil by murdering it. Admittedly, it's a strange movie, changing what it wants to be depending on how the scene is playing out. It's a slasher horror offering, at least until we arrest our suspect, and then it becomes a standard Dirty Harry clone, before then switching right at the end back to being a slasher film set in a nurse's dormitory. Now, having actors like Lewis and Brimley involved help keep things feeling a little more real and centered, and personally, I find Lewis to be particularly great here. His sort of slimy defense attorney, who's supposed to be viewed as being this reprehensible character, but in reality, he's one of the most pragmatic people we get to see on screen during this outing, especially when he's trying to give Stacy his legal counsel as a client. Sign here. Standard bail bond agreement, what it'll cost you. All I want is out. That's what we're here for. They put you in, I get you out, Mr. Danny keeps you out. What's he looking at, Dave? Did they read you your right to remain silent? Did you? Of course. Good boy. <clears throat> we plead not guilty. Demand a jury trial with their backlog. Nobody's going to pay any attention to it sexy phone call. I can practically guarantee you a suspended sentence. Excuse me. I'm talking to my client. Do you mind? Well, I have something more for you to talk about. We found some blood on your client's clothing. We're going to rebook him, murder one. What? See you at the arraignment. You dirty shit! He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it! You dirty shit! He's lying! He's lying! He's lying! No! No! Nice. Very nice. Just right. All right, let's hear it again. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Good boy. 
We can always plead insanity later. I'm not insane. I know that. But in case we have to go that route, I just want you to know that we're in pretty good shape. No matter what you've done, the worse it is, the more the jury's going to think that no normal person could have done it. You follow me? So we work out a routine. Say you're two people. One good, one bad. You start hearing voices. The bad boy telling the good boy what to do. He doesn't want to do it, but he can't help himself. You see? You're saying I'm a schizo. No, Warren. I'm saying that you'll walk out of a crazy house alive. They'll carry you out of a gas chamber dead. So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received? Well, unsurprisingly, critics were not overly kind to the film. Most bemoaning the violence, the nudity, the lack of character development, the paper-thin plot. Favorite punching bag of mine, Roger Ebert, who got the film's title wrong in his review, opened it up by stating that this was a scummy little sewer of a movie. A cesspool that lingers sadistically on shots of a killer terrifying and killing helpless women, and then shameless enough to end with an appeal for law and order. The people who made From Ten to Midnight, as he inaccurately calls it, have every right to be ashamed for themselves. That includes Charles Bronson, whose name appears on the marquee and is the only reason anybody would come to see this. Strangely enough, though, his partner, Gene Siskel, usually the more uptight of the duo during this film era, he liked the movie. He thought this was great fun. Go figure. Variety's Lion immediately hit on the connection to the Speck murders in his review and noted that Gene Davis plays a killer well enough here, but he was really more interested in commenting on just how the L.A. public theater that he saw the film in were behaving. I guess audience members were cheering and whooping it up as Bronson dispatched the killer, noting that in spite of the disgrace that Bronson's actions brought, there were some very unsarcastic cries of, I love it, that were filling the air, speaking to a larger feeling of frustration that was being held by people of the nation at the time. Jimmy Summers of Box Office was a little more critical in his review, noting that this film is a nasty bit of revenge drama, with Bronson doing his usual wooden walkthrough that will thrill the action crowds, but will stump just about everyone else. Summers also noted that this picture looks a lot better than Deathwish 2 did, but quips that just because the wrapping is nicer doesn't mean that what's inside is any better. It's still the same old predictable, cynical revenge story. Summers also commented on the filmgoers in the theater for movies like this one. There was a large turnout of older, urban males. That might be fortunate for business, but it's also a little bit unnerving. Marjorie Bilbo of Screen International predicted that this would do well in mid-market cinemas, but noted that the story itself was overly simplistic and very exploitative, commenting that Bronson's Kessler is discussed with the killer's own sexual habits and owning things like pornography, really reframes the story in such a puritanical extreme that it seems he's more intent on punishing the young man for visiting sex shops than he is for really stopping a killer. Now, all that said, lest you think that 10 to Midnight was a fluke, on its $4.5 million investment, when it opened in March 1983, it went on to make $7.1 million at the American box office, and then it would make a mint for Canon on the international and video markets on the back end, which of course reinforced their brand of low-brow, low-budget, high-return projects. For me, personally, I'll say this, I don't find the film's violence or its, quote, brazen nudity to actually be off-putting thing about it. Rather, I think what's both interesting and somewhat revolting about 10 to Midnight simultaneously is how a certain portion of the public react to it. Some of the more discerning reviewers pointed out that they themselves were unsettled with the audience reaction of the film, a doubling down on the sort of rah-rah social movement towards vigilante justice against the otherness of Reagan's 80s America, aka if you were non-white, non-middle-aged, non-elite. It is an ugly film. I would argue, though, no more so than any other film that came out during this time. But the hyperpolitics that it seems to be espousing makes it 
both an interesting film and it gives it a shelf life far longer than perhaps it should normally deserve. And honestly, for that fact, I'm a little grateful because it allows new generations of filmgoers to experience this interesting and transitory time at to what we used to consider was good at the box office. And also, it acts as a reflection on some really strange social mores of the day. I'll be honest with you, this is not a film for everybody. But it is an odd little time capsule of a movie that I think people who are interested in Bronson or Canon or just want to see changes that were going on during this part of the movie-going history, that allows you to be drawn and entertained by some different content here. As far as Bronson and Cannon would be concerned, this was just another success that would feed the demand for more of Bronson starring in this type of movie. And it would have the company go on to make another six Bronson films after this one, two of them being straight-up Death Wish sequels, and others being equally rogue cop offerings, much like this. Thompson would also be on the short list of directors that the Go-Go Boys would continue to call to make other adventure films as well, ones that didn't star Bronson. Indeed, this was a time of profit and growth for the company, and they were about to hit their profitable zenith when they decided to dabble in a little movie about dancing. But we're going to have to explore that next week when the LSCE visits the last time the company truly had real money in hand with the success of Breakin'. The version of 10 to Midnight screamed here at the LSCE was the MGM 2018 double feature DVD release that gives the lucky viewer both the film 10 to Midnight as well as the 1989 canon Bronson offering Kinjite Forbidden Subjects. The movie itself is rather bare bones and it comes with just the film and that's about it, nothing else. Still, for the cost of having two Bronson films, it can be yours today on Amazon.com for $14.99, which isn't too bad of a deal if you ask me. Oddly enough, though, you can get the single film from the MGM Classics release line, same bare-bones offering, for the same price, so I would argue you'd want to go with the double feature. That said, true fans will want to actually focus on the 2019 Shout Factory Collector's Edition release that came chocked full of goodies. That includes interviews with Andrew Stevens, producer Lance Houle, a making of featurette, audio commentary by film historian and Bronson biographer Paul Talbot, producer Poncho Conner, John Crawworth, and David DeVale. Plus, it includes theatrical trailers, radio spots, and photo galleries. And all of that wonderfulness can be yours for the low price of $20.99 to get it on Blu-ray, which again, I think is a marvelous deal. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase your films. We just feel in this day and age, it's still ever so important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies will keep releasing the content that we all know and love for our own purchasing delight. And at the end of the day, isn't that what this is all really about? getting more of what we know and love. Besides, Ten to Midnight is such an odd offering from such a strange time, and if you're a Bronson fan, or if you're an enthusiast of off-brand horror, this is sort of one of those too crazy not to check out. So do yourself a favor. What are you waiting for? Go out there, get a copy of Ten to Midnight today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope to have you back next week, and indeed all summer long, as we run through some of our favorite titles that Canon has brought to us over the years. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, thelscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also been recently added to Stitcher, so you can find us there. Give us a spin if you like. I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, you could simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. 
We're also featured on Good Pods and Podchaser. Those are both podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow and a review if you could please, and hey, feel free to like any of those lists that we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and it makes us more searchable, and then we can share more films with more people. And that's what you want to do, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do! Do you have any questions for us? Any comments? Any movies you want us to cover? Anything you thought I got wrong? We would love to hear from you. Please send us an email or an audio clip by way of lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can find us and follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. We're also on Facebook if you want to find us there at Linden Street Cinema Experience. And if you want to have an even more personable or interesting interaction and want to submit a sidecar segment, please feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, everybody, most importantly, stay healthy and well. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.